welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I'm beginning this episode on a Friday before having to go out and we'll try to complete it on time tomorrow, Saturday, for the usual Saturday drop. But I also have to be out in the morning, apropos of nothing in terms of this particular episode. It's ironic to me that here I am trying not to go out because of vaccination mandates. By the way, I am vaccinated. And because of mask wearing, which I find intolerable, but of late certain obligations, not necessarily terrible ones, but obligations, things I really can't say no to, have popped up. So I have to go out. I suppose one could, and this would be apropos of the episode, a case of rising above my principles. I think you'll see what I mean because I'm going to be talking about St. Thomas More, a lawyer and a martyr for the Catholic faith. Another slight digression is that some of the reasons I have to go out have to do with medical maintenance. I'm of a certain age, and so now every part of me has to be looked at almost every six months or on alternate stages. So once a year, I have my heart tests because there's heart disease in my family, and I have to have my colon done every few years because we have colon cancer in my family. Uh, I have to have my eyes checked because I had cataract surgery and I also had my vision nearsightedness fixed some years ago. So, and also I'm of a certain age and we have to avoid macular degeneration. So I have to go to that once a year. I have to go to the bone density people once a year. I have to go to my mammogram people every few months because again, we have a history in my family of all of that. So it makes me laugh because all those places I have to wear masks. And it's also interesting because it, if I ever laughed at my father, whose life in his later years was about going to doctors, well, I'm experiencing a bit of that now. I could not go, but then I wouldn't have the maintenance. And there are times when I resist going because I feel as if I get on this treadmill that leads you right down to the abyss. You know, it's like, okay, last stop before you keel over. But on the other hand, I've had a reasonably good life and I'd like to keep living it. And so once again, for a variety of things, including going to mass and church related activities, I will wear a mask and I will go out. But it just seems that this last couple of weeks, I went from not going out at all to going out. And as I said, concerned and a little embarrassed by rising above my principles, which brings me rather nicely to St. Thomas More and his principles. I mentioned last week that I had been reading a book by Gerard B. Wigamer called Thomas More, A Portrait of Courage. It praises him really quite a lot. And I know and will address a bit, although I don't really have the expertise to do it, but it concerns me and I want to be honest and raise it, that Although largely Thomas More is perceived with great admiration, as seems to be the 
habit of modern people who for some reason think that they have a perfection that the past did not have, there's been a bit of scholarship, and I don't know if I put it in quotes or not, but there has been scholarship that claims that he just wasn't such a good guy because after all, he killed heretics. Well, that's not entirely true. And again, we have a tendency in this society to look at the past in terms of our way of living, which is absurd. Can you imagine when people of the future, if we have a future, look back at this time and see the many imperfections we had and look back and say, oh, we would never do that. But they'll do their own stuff that's very imperfect because of human frailty. But anyway, so overall, Thomas More has a great reputation, but just as with Mother Teresa, there are people who actually criticize Mother Teresa. There are those who believe that he just wasn't perfect. It's, again, a little odd because I don't know of any perfect people. And the idea, as I've said in some past uh, podcasts, the idea that a saint is perfect is simply not the case. It's someone who has striven to be holy and has led a relatively as holy a life as one can lead, having been a human being. So that's one prong about how I got to this podcast. The second prong is something that's been happening this week politically, and I always confess my leanings. I am a conservative. I lean conservative, although I am not a member of either party. Because I lean conservative, I probably am more Republican than I am Democrat. And like all of us, I've been watching the drama in Washington over the infrastructure bill and other bills and how there are two Democrats, Sinewa and Manchin, who are putting a wrench in the Democrats' works. This week, Bernie Sanders said something about Sinewa, I think, or maybe about both of them, regarding the fact that 48 of their fellow senators were of the same opinion regarding the value of the bill, but only the two of them were against it. And he suggested that it being this 48, that they were obstructive in not voting for it with that majority. Well, I had just read a portion of the transcript of the trial of St. Thomas More in the 16th century. Because I can't assume, no one can assume, that everybody knows about Thomas More, I should give you a little bit of his history, his biography. First of all, he was a Renaissance man. I mean, literally. He was born at the beginning of the Renaissance. You might even call him something of the original Renaissance man in that he studied everything. He studied literature, he studied language, including Latin, which was very common in those days. It was not too uncommon when I was a kid, but it's pretty well gone now. He also studied philosophy, theology, political philosophy, in which he was greatly interested. He really, really wanted to be a priest. And I suppose this was a particularly urgent thing for someone in those days, because not only was it the beginning of the Renaissance, but remember that in, what, 1511? That's when Luther nailed his theses to the Wittenberg Cathedral, and so began 
the split from the Catholic Church. He lived at a Carthusian monastery for like four years, so really developed his inner life, his spiritual life, and came to the idea, the realization really, that his vocation was marriage. His other vocation, it turned out, was the law, which even then could be a very narrow, myopic profession. But with all of his training, his well-roundedness, he was prepared for an exciting mental life. Part of his early training was also kind of a cross between the secular and the religious. He was page for a couple of years to the Lord Chancellor, who was also Archbishop, John Morton. And so he saw, remember, this is a time when church and state worked very closely together. They were effectively two sides of a coin. The state also answered to God. And since England was a Catholic state, it was Catholic theology that governed. Moore went to Lincoln's Inn, which I believe still exists today. And oh, before that, he studied at Oxford. I always like to think about Oxford because it was a favorite place I visited. And I can imagine the trail of famous people who walked through those streets and those university buildings years and years ago, but buildings that still look exactly the same today. So he went to Oxford, then he went to Lincoln's Inn, and believe it or not, by the time he was in his 20s, he was elected member of parliament. I suspect it makes the rest of us feel like slackers. And this was a man of wit and wisdom, of seriousness, of great learning. And in fact, he also was a favorite of the king, King Henry, who was then known as the defender of the faith, who used to just visit Thomas More at his home. Although dirt has been thrown on his reputation in more modern times, when one reads the historical documents of the time, and one can say, well, they were biased, maybe they were. But overall, Thomas More was seen as a friend to most and able to deal with almost any situation. Hence, I think, as I understood it, the concept of his being a man for all seasons. He was at ease, or maybe he wasn't at ease. People felt at ease with him in all aspects of life, political life, religious life, artistic life, book life. He was friend to great and small. Among the great was the Dutch philosopher, also a Catholic, named Erasmus. They were very close. Perhaps if he had stayed in what one might say was more private life, the life he had been leading till he was in his early 40s, the things that happened later on would not have happened. Perhaps he would not have ended up a martyr with his head taken off. But in his early 40s, he took on being a part of the service of King Henry's court. Now remember, he knew King Henry. He knew him well. And he understood the vagaries and the treacheries of power. And the king had the greatest power on earth. And as Moore recognized pride in himself and so tested himself, one of the reasons he didn't go into public service so early is that he knew about his pride. And you know, and I know, when we start rising up in the ranks, certain personality traits become more prominent. 
and among them is the desire to overtake everyone else and to perhaps take power over others along with the control of the situations at hand and to be very smug about our capacities and our rightness. And while Henry was, quote, a good Catholic right now, he had even more pride than Thomas More. I don't know that More expressed it that way, but clearly, given the power the man had, any pride he had would also be maximized. And so More was not a fool. He understood the dangers to himself. And when people would say, well, you know, you have favor with the king, he was very, very practical and prudent. He is known to have said to his son-in-law, William Roper, that I may tell you that I have no cause to be proud because of this. For if my head could win him, meaning Henry, a castle in France, it should not fail to go. Well, those are kind of prophetic words. It is recorded that Moore, before taking the job with the king to be his, in his service, to be his servant, told Henry of his issues of conscience, his general ones, and I suppose from a sort of point of view, secured some understanding of the king. For a while, they were on essentially the same page. Remember, again, that this was the period of the Protestant Reformation, and King Henry even wrote something that made him be designated as defender of the faith against the Protestant Reformation. On one side, the laments of Luther were completely understandable. Yes, there was corruption in the leadership of the Catholic Church. Well, that wasn't new, and it wasn't new then, and as you know, it isn't new now. But the argument on the other side is that instead of true reform, there was a wholesale change in many of the tenets, the dogmas of the Catholic Church, in order to address that complaint, and that Luther and his followers basically created a parallel church, and one that satisfied not only the issues with regard to indulgences and the sale of indulgences and other corruptions, but that dealt with their own concerns about certain theological concepts like the existence of hell, like works not being necessary to salvation. Now, I'm not challenging or questioning any of those things right now. I'm just pointing it out that these were major changes, and it wasn't a peaceful thing on their side either. Remember that persecution occurred on both sides, and one can understand if one doesn't look at things from this rather, how would I call it, simplistic view of modern man, that there were lots of complications that when they used the word heresy, this was very serious, and it was essentially a violation of the law. We have violent times now. We're not any less violent than we were thousands of years ago, or 400 years ago, or 200 years ago, or 50 years ago. And so the responses on both sides were violent frequently. 
And then one could understand perhaps the violence is that although it was the Renaissance, these were people of an earlier time, a people of their time in history. And remember, ruining of reputations is not a new thing. So though Moore disputed and history disputes that he in fact burned anyone, heretics, the fact is that that is still a story that goes around or that he personally beat heretics or that he burned anyone at the stake. He definitely prosecuted heretics, no doubt about it. That was part of his job, particularly when he became chancellor. He, Moore, was dealing with his century's slippery slope and it was really almost like a black ice slope. And then comes along Henry, once the great defender of the Catholic faith, who decides that he cannot have an heir, a male heir, by the wife that he has, Catherine, and so wants to have a child, a male child, by the younger and more beautiful and obviously more fertile Anne Boleyn. And now you could argue that separation from the Catholic Church is a precedent, and a precedent that Henry can use to get his way. When the Pope denied him the ability to divorce his perfectly acceptable wife, he said, Henry did, that he was now going to become the head of the church. Bye-bye, Pope. Hello, Henry. And it was not enough that he just did it. Everyone had to first tolerate it, two, accept it, and three, embrace it by an oath. Henry always knew Moore's position on his desire to put away his first wife and take a second and make himself head of the church. But what Moore did is he used silence and subtle rhetoric where he had to, to maintain his conscience that these were wrongs, but not publicly affect the position of Henry as the king. A very, very difficult balance. Getting canceled in Henry VIII's good old England meant losing your properties, meant the church monasteries being overturned and taken away, and many times and most times meant your very death. Perhaps if more people had stood up to Henry, his court, bishops, priests, perhaps he might have been persuaded. I don't know. Maybe not. This was a narcissistic political leader, as allegedly and largely many leaders are in public service. Not all, certainly not more. But pretty much every one of them conceded to the king, and ultimately there was an annulment granted by the Catholic Archbishop of the marriage of King Henry and Catherine, and Moore was set on an inexorable, inexorable road, which he could have avoided by one simple thing, public acceptance of the actions of Henry VIII and ultimately the taking of an act of supremacy as oath. Up to the time that an actual oath had to be taken, he could 
slide away from repercussions or the most serious repercussions of his conscience. The law as it stood before the presence of an oath did not require him to violate his conscience. That's how I understand it anyway. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but it's like now. Abortion, quite now, is the law of the land, enshrined in a case, a terrible case. I'm against it. I will do nothing to participate in an abortion or advocate an abortion. In fact, I would express my view otherwise. But what if a law was proposed and required that said, I must agree that abortion is a good, that it is effectively a violation of civil rights if I even say that abortion is not a civil right. Are we not getting to, not in that specific area, but are we not getting to a point where if you say something in opposition to a prevailing idea that abortion is a good or that men and women are the same or that men can give birth or that men can be women and women can be men, that you are effectively cast out. Now, right now, nobody's being physically persecuted, that is, physically by pain or torture or anything of that nature. But certainly there is a, an attitude that you are less than human if you do not agree to what you know in conscience and in practicality makes no sense and arguably is against God's law. And here's the thing, that Justice Henry once was on the same page with the rest of the society regarding God's laws suddenly he wasn't and everything changed and there was no foundational truth except the truth as imposed by power. In that case, Henry VIII's power, the power to behead you. Now, today's day, if you say you disagree with a premise that's posited by the government or the media or the universities or the unions, you are told you are a hater. You are now cast into the bad position by the people in power. It's not that everybody agrees, not that everybody agrees with the position, but the people who control the society and its communication say so. And when that happens, you are now subject to punishments of various sorts, because we don't agree anymore on what the truth is. Truth is relative and it's relative to power. So, similar to Bernie Sanders saying that two congresspeople were obstructive, basically doing something immoral, he didn't use those words, by not voting with 48 other Democrats, he's not doing something slightly new. And right now, he can't personally exert the power as Henry VIII did to force those people by dangers to their careers, in some cases, as you know, because there's been some, not assault, but close to an assault on Senua, she couldn't even go to the restroom without being harassed. But if that power is solidified as it could be, then we can see another world much like that of Thomas More's.
I really highly recommend the reading of the trial transcript of the trial of Thomas More, which I think is available in book form. Certainly pieces of it are available on the net. But here's a piece I want to read related to what I'm talking about, about, say, the Bernie Sanders saying, they, those people, voted against 48 people, as if the mere fact of 48 people is sufficient for them to change their conscience, if that's what they're voting on. So here's what happened. When Moore was being questioned, the questioners said that seeing all the bishops, universities, and the most learned men in the kingdom had agreed to the act, the act of supremacy, it was much wondered that he, Thomas More alone, should so stiffly stickle and so vehemently argue there against it. More answered, that is the number of bishops and universities were so material as his lordship seemed to make it, then, my lord, I see no reason why that thing should make any change in my conscience. For I doubt not, but of the learned and virtuous men now alive, I do not speak only of this realm, but of all Christendom. There are ten to one of my mind in this matter, not if I should take notice of those learned doctors and virtuous fathers that are already dead, many of whom are saints in heaven. I am sure there are far more who all the while they lived, thought in this café as I do now. And therefore, my lord, I do not think myself bound to conform my conscience to the counsel of one kingdom against the general consent of all of Christendom. I just read that from a site called Famous Trials by a Professor Douglas O'Linder. Just so you want to find it, you can read the rest of it. There was a time when consensus was not based on one's emotional state. It was based on learning and first principles that the entire society agreed upon. That's why the United States worked for a very long time, because we had the Declaration of Independence and we recognized the truth of certain principles, even though we could not achieve them completely yet, we strove towards them. And we agreed that they existed and were worth fighting for. That's gone now. And so everyone has a different idea of what's true about the United States and whether it should even bother surviving. But it goes beyond that. It goes to the church itself, which holds certain principles true, but principles that are being so routinely set aside as if they do not in fact exist by some kind of power acclamation. It's sort of the go-to thing to say it's the absence of God and belief in God. And belief in God as has always been generally held by the people of Christendom by the Judeo-Christian society. And maybe what makes it even worse now is that there is sort of a whole bunch of Henry VIII's out there with a rather large amount of power that can be imposed on others and require them to speak and act according to their wills. I want to read one more thing uh, before I close today, and that is a poem, or prayer actually, that was written by St. Thomas More when he was in the Tower of London before he was beheaded. And it's one that we've heard pieces of over the years, but it's a very wonderful and significant and lengthy prayer that 
tells us that we must hold to the objective values of God. It goes, Give me the grace, good Lord, to set the world at naught, to set the mind firmly on you and not to hang upon the words of men's mouths, to be content to be solitary, not to long for worldly pleasures, little by little, utterly to cast off the world and rid my mind of all its business, not to long to hear of earthly things, but that the hearing of worldly fancies may be displeasing to me, gladly to be thinking of God, piteously to call for his help, to lean into the comfort of God, busily to labor, to love him, to know my own vileness and wretchedness, to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, to bewail my sins, and for the purging of them, patiently to suffer adversity, gladly to bear my purgatory here, to be joyful in tribulations, to walk the narrow way that leads to life, to have the last thing in remembrance, to have ever before my eyes my death that is ever at hand, to make death no stranger to me, to foresee and consider the everlasting fire of hell, to pray for pardon before the judge comes, to have continually in mind the passion that Christ suffered for me, for his benefits unceasingly, to give him thanks, to buy the time again that I have lost, to abstain from vain conversations, to shun foolish mirth and gladness, to cut off unnecessary recreations, of worldly substance, friends, liberty, life and all, to set the loss at naught for the winning of Christ, to think my worst enemies, my best friends, for the brethren of Joseph, could never have done him so much good with their love and favor as they did him with their malice and hatred. These minds are more to be desired of every man than all the treasures of all the princes and kings, Christian and heathen, were gathered and laid together all in one heap. Amen. I can't make anyone who believes that this current society of bizarre beliefs, of bizarre principles, of principles based on emotion and want and desire rather than intellect and reason and theological principles of God and nature, that that's the situation, that it's really terrible. I can't convince anyone. But I guess I can say, well, at least we have an example, someone who was enormously educated and thoughtful, who saw very similar things and who was willing to sacrifice his life in order to attain heaven rather than commonality with a few men. The preservation of his body was not worth the destruction of his soul. If you don't believe in a soul, then I guess there is no issue. But if you do, it is the most crucial thing of concern. Well, so ends another half hour of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I don't know if I made a point or any point. I'm really, as always I say, struggling with my own stuff and assuming that others are struggling with it as well. And I just kind of share my thoughts and wonder about your thoughts. So I hope that you're listening to this program on places like TuneIn and Amazon and Spotify. I think it's on Pandora. 
I don't know. But in any case, um, since I'm not on Facebook anymore, I need you to spread the word that I have this podcast with those you think might be interested in it. And, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. It's just that we're all going along the same road, trying to get where hopefully God wants us. I will see you next week.